0: Several months ago, I uh, I came across a um, a questionnaire that apparently some insurance companies in the U.K. use to try to figure out how long people will live. Helpfully, it's called the countdown calculator. <laughs> I kid you not. Uh, so what you do, you put in your uh, your date of birth, and then and then it asks you a bunch of questions. Here's some of the questions. They, It asks you, do you smoke? If so, how many? Do you exercise regularly? On average, how much do you drink? Do you eat saturated fats? Now listen, I did some research on those. Saturated fats are things like Brussels sprouts, broccoli, (laughs) peas, you don't wanna eat those. They're gonna shave years off your life. Uh, Are you overweight? If so, by how much? How many hours of sleep do you get a night? Now see, I don't have a problem with that one. I'm a pastor. I work one day a week. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. <laughs> Do you have a history of cardiovascular problems in your family? Do you wear a seat belt? Have you ever been in a car accident? If so, how often? <laughs> how often? What are you? Some kind of psycho? Okay. So you answer all these questions, and then the countdown calculator gives you your your, uh, your age of death and your your date of death. So I did that. I, I answered all the questions. I got my calculated date of death. I had a spinach salad for lunch. I went for a run in the afternoon and I was in bed by nine o'clock. What brings us to Easter services like this one is a death. If there was no cross, there would be no need for a tomb. And thus no empty tomb. You can't get to your Easter without going through your death. Ernest Becker was a a cultural uh, anthropologist at UC Berkeley, and years ago, back in the 70s, he wrote a book entitled The Denial of Death. And in its opening pages, he writes this. He says, The idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it, by denying in some way that it is the destiny for man. And throughout the book, Becker makes the case that much of human structure and human activity, particularly in the West, is designed to insulate us from death. He makes a pretty convincing case that there has never been in human history a culture more insulated from death than our own. And I can't think of a worse thing to be doing to ourselves than that. We are filling our lives with activities and structures that protect us from ever having to give a thought to this reality. Listen, I understand it's unpleasant. I get that. But just because you don't feel like thinking about it doesn't mean it'll go away. (laughs) We're deluding ourselves if we don't take some time to think about it. So here's what we're going to consider today. We're going to look at the importance of thinking about death The reason death exists and the hope available in death defeated. The importance of thinking about death, the reason death exists, the hope available in death defeated. The best day of the year to think about a subject like this is today. Because if you're a true follower of Christ, Easter is a prediction of your future. So today's a great day to think about a subject like this. Let's dive in first. The importance of thinking about death. God wants us to think about it. Look at what he says to us in James chapter four. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Life is short. Ponder it. Think about it. Psalm 90 verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So God's saying to us, thinking about your um, mortality, thinking about your finiteness, thinking about your fact that life is short and you will one day die, leads to wisdom. Of course, the implication of that is those who don't ponder such things are on a road that leads to foolishness. Psalm thirty-nine, four: Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. Now, somebody may say, "Okay, yeah, I, I write, but..." you know what, I'm young. I have a whole world ahead of me. I have a whole life ahead of me. Statistically, that may be true. But with every statistic, there's always an exception. And no one has guaranteed you, you will not be that exception. When I was in college, I received a phone call from a friend of mine who uh, was a youth pastor. And uh, he called letting me know that one of the kids in his youth group had been killed in a car accident. And he wanted to know if I'd be willing to come and, and play and sing for the funeral. So I did. I was there um, playing and singing to an absolutely packed out high school uh, gymnasium. Um, we were attending the funeral of a 16-year-old boy named Riley. Riley. Riley probably had put stuff on his to-do list for the week to come. He probably had put stuff into his calendar that he needed to get to in the week to come. But when he did that, he had no idea he'd never get to them. It is wise for us to think about death. It's wise for us to heed what God is telling us in passages like this, that our lives are a mist. They're here today and gone tomorrow. It's wise to consider your life's end. I'm becoming more and more convinced that as we learn to do that, as we take time, maybe each day, to think about your life's end, we are not gonna be as bothered as much by the stuff of this life. If you think about your life's end, the fact that your life is a mist, it appears for a little while and then vanishes, you're not gonna be as bothered as much by the stain that you got on your new carpet or the car trouble you had, or the bad grade you got on that test, or the rough day you had at work, or the deal you lost. When we learn to number our days and see our life's end, we are not going to be bothered as much by the stuff of this life. Instead, what's going to preoccupy us are things that will outlast our days on this earth. This is the importance of thinking about death. Second, the reason death exists if you survey the world's population, you realize that not everybody agrees on this idea. Why does death exist? What, what is the nature of it? Why, how do, what do we do about it? Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism believe life is reincarnated, so you'll die and you come back as another human being or some other life form. Some view death the way it's portrayed in Mitch Albom's best-selling book, Tuesdays with Maury. Mitch Albom describes the agonizingly slow death of his mentor, Maury Schwartz was dying in pieces as ALS was inching its way up his body, melting the nerves in his legs and his torso until finally it took his arms and his head. In one of their last conversations, um, Maury explained why although he really didn't believe in God, he wasn't afraid to die. Here's what he said, Death is as natural as life. The fact that we make such a big hullabaloo over it is all because we don't see ourselves as part of nature. We think because we're human, we're something above nature. We're not. Everything that gets born dies. This is a common view of death. Death is just the natural part of life. And because it's normal, we should just accept it. Mike Whitmer illustrates the ludicrousness of this idea he says imagine coming home to find that somebody had broken into your house stolen your stuff and then set fire to your place you call frantically call the dispatcher only to hear the dispatcher on the other end say calm down calm down we've been getting a lot of those calls lately (laughs) burglary and arson are the new normal you going to be okay with that No, you're going to say, I don't care how normal you think it is. Send the police department and fire department over immediately. Or imagine flying at 35,000 feet above the Pacific Ocean when the pilot comes on the loudspeaker and says, folks, looks like our engines have failed. Which, to be honest, is not surprising for this Macon model. (laughs) They typically give out at about 150,000 miles. But hey, you know, they had a nice run. Brace yourselves for impact, and remember, we're not the first plane to crash. It's more common than you think. Everyone to be okay in the cabin? Everyone's okay with that? It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous to say that just because something is normal, it should be accepted. None of these perspectives explain why death exists. They just say that it does, and we should be okay with that. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not okay with that. I hope you're not okay with that either, and if you're not okay with that, then I invite you to consider another perspective, because there was somebody else who refused, refused to believe that just because death is a part of life, we should just accept it, and that was Jesus himself. Jesus did not accept that death is normal, and we should therefore just accept it. Sometimes we forget the humanity of Jesus, that he had people in his life that he loved. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one to death. Jesus had a very good friend named Lazarus. Lazarus died, and Jesus was not okay with that. In fact, in John 11, it says that when Jesus approached the place where they had laid Lazarus' body, Jesus quaked with rage. You don't quake with rage over the death of a loved one if you see death as normal and a natural part of life. Jesus quaked with rage over the death of his loved one, which is a good thing for us because it's telling us that Jesus did not accept that death is normal and should therefore just be accepted. So why and how did death come to exist? And why is Jesus so emotionally impassioned in opposition to it? Here's what God tells us. Romans chapter five, verse 12. Sin entered the world through one man and death entered the world through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. Because all sinned. There you go. That's God's explanation for how and why death became a part of this life. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Death entered the world through sin because everyone now is naturally sinful and sins throughout their lifetime. Everyone dies. That's the Bible's explanation for this. So the Bible sees sin and death is a prob- as a problem, which is a good thing, because if the Bible did not see sin and death as a problem, there would be no reason to pursue a solution. Eastern religions and secularism don't really see death as a problem, therefore they don't really pursue a solution to it. Christianity, on the other hand, sees sin and death as a real problem, which means maybe there's a solution. One scholar puts it this way. He says, a f- uh, consider a father who passes a defective gene for lung cancer onto his kids each of which compounds the problem by smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. No doctor would throw up his hands and conclude lung cancer is simply natural for this family. Rather, he will try to devise a plan to repair their broken nature and strongly recommend they not make their condition worse by smoking. When Adam sinned, he corrupted his nature and passed that corrupt nature onto us. We have that corrupt nature, and every one of us compounds the problem by smoking packs of sin each day. This is why we die. This is why death exists. And Jesus is not okay with that. This problem is the reason his good friend Lazarus has died. Lazarus has a sinful nature and because of that nature has sinned throughout his lifetime. But even though that's the way it is, (laughs) Jesus rejects the idea that this is the way it's supposed to be. So listen, if you're fairly sure you're going to die someday, then you can be equally sure that sin is a problem for you. That's what has to be dealt with. So let's look lastly at the hope available in death defeated. Jesus rejects the idea that death is the way it's supposed to be, which is why he came. What Jesus came to do says a lot about what the real problem is. If our greatest problem was political, Jesus would have been a politician. If our greatest problem was medical, Jesus would have been a physician. If our greatest problem was counseling, Jesus would have been a therapist. He did not come primarily as a politician, physician, or a therapist. He came as a savior. Which says a lot about what the real problem is. Jesus came as a savior. That implies we need Saving from something. What did he come to save us from? Now, clearly, listen, clearly, Jesus' death and resurrection has not saved Christians from physically dying. Christians still physically die. Therefore, the greatest threat we face that Jesus came to address must not be physical death. There must be something worse than that. What was that? That's the million dollar question. And if you don't know the answer to that question, that might be the reason you're uneasy about facing your own death. You're not sure what happens after you breathe your last. Earlier, I said when Adam sinned, he corrupted his nature and he passed that corrupt nature on to us, like, like a father passing a defective gene onto his children. It's because we've inherited this corrupt nature and smoke packs of sin each day that we physically die. But physical death isn't the only consequence. There's a second consequence that God talks about in his word to us, a second consequence of this sin that we all face. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, the Apostle Paul, think about this. The Apostle Paul is talking to people who are physically alive. They've never been physically dead. Then that must mean the death Paul talks about here is spiritual death. These people were spiritually dead. Then he goes on to say this. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So Jesus came as a savior to die and rise again in order to rescue us from the greatest threat we all face, and that's spiritual death. Listen, everybody in this room right now is either spiritually alive or spiritually dead. There is no third category. Which category you're in will determine what you experience the moment you breathe your last. So if you wanna face your own death with hope, confidence, and assurance, Here's the examination that you need to do of yourself. Am I spiritually alive? That's the question. How would I know? How would I know if I am? There are a lot of ways to answer that question, but a good place to start would be to look at what Jesus said to Lazarus' sister at his gravesite. Jesus turned to Lazarus' sister and said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is saying the one who believes in him will live even though they die. The one who believes in him is spiritually alive. The one who believes in him will continue to live even though they die. Why is he able to say that? Because Jesus himself defeated death. He's the only one to have ever overcome it. Easter is a celebration of death's defeat. And for those who are spiritually alive, Easter is a prediction of your future. So let me ask you, do you have that hope and assurance in the face of your death? Do you have confidence? Can you stare it in the face? If not, talk to somebody about it. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to me. It's too important to put off. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of America's great preachers, and... Um, His first wife died of cancer when she was in her 30s, leaving behind three children under the age of 12. Dr. Barnhouse chose to preach the funeral to himself, and so he and his kids were loaded up in the car on their way to the funeral when a large truck passed them on the highway casting a shadow over their car. At which point he turned to his oldest daughter, who was staring out the window, and he asked her, Tell me, sweetheart, would you rather be run over by that truck or by its shadow? She said, The shadow, I guess, it can't hurt you. Then he turned to his kids and said, Your mother has not been overrun by death, but by its shadow. How could he make such a confident statement? in the face of a tragedy like that. Because he knew his wife believed Jesus' words. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And the question Jesus asked Lazarus' sister in that moment is the question he's asking you today. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's think about this together. Can you face your death with hope? Are you spiritually alive? I know some of you have tremendous confidence that you will live even though you die, but some of you may not be sure about that. And probably one of the reasons you're not sure about that is because you're looking to your performance in life as the basis for your hope. Here's what you're doing. You're compiling a moral resume as you live life, and you think that one day you're going to hand that moral resume to God in hopes that he'll like what he sees. But one of the reasons you're not sure you can face your death with hope is that when you look at your moral resume, you're not sure it's good enough. You've got some stuff in your life you feel like you've not compensated for. But if, So if that's you, listen to me, you're going about it all wrong. You need to know something. You will never be good enough. You'll never be good enough. Jesus lived the life you should have lived but failed to, and Jesus died the death you should have died for failing to live the life you should have lived. Now, why did he do that? Because he loves you so that by faith you can get credit for what he has done. To be a Christian is to rest secured that the life Jesus lived and the death he died and defeated in your place is sufficient to ensure the greatest threat you will ever face is merely death's shadow and nothing more. That's how you face death with hope. If your heart has been melted by that truth, you can have hope in the face of death. Easter's confirmation of that. Easter predicts your future. Jesus, I pray that you would do a work in this room. Those who are not yet spiritually alive, you know who they are. My prayer is simple, Jesus. I pray that you would raise them to life. Melt their hearts with what you've done for them so that they can confidently assert their hope in the face of death. I pray, Lord, that you would recapture our thoughts and affections. That we would praise you for what you have done for us, done out of your great love for us. It's in your name I pray. Amen.
1: Dear Jesus, Who do you think you are? You came riding into town. You claimed to be God. The people lined the streets and shouted, Hosanna! Oh, it looked like they loved you. But they didn't. They did not love you. They did not heed your words. They were not your friends. They were your enemies. And before the week had even ended, they crucified you. And now, here you are, nailed on a cross, naked and weak. Of course, the only reason I'm here is because I know what you're really up to. You're paying for something. You have been crowned with guilt, the shame of all the people you loved. The mistakes of every person. That nagging selfishness that emerges from the womb like a cancer that never stops growing. The cheating, the backstabbing, the despicable things they wish upon others. All the secrets kept under wraps, kept behind closed doors. I can see you pushing with your feet, trying to breathe underneath the weight of it all. All the petty anger of prideful men the blatant disregard for others, the lack of compassion, the insistence of entitlement, the material obsessions, the unspeakable amounts of money they spend on looking good while their fellow humans are starving. What does it feel like knowing that all of this is on you? Every divorce Every abandonment Every deadbeat dad Every gunshot Every kid lying dead in the street The men who kidnap girls and sell their dignity for a few dollars All the insecure rage and outbursts The I hate you The I'll do what I want The pornographic addictions The jealousy The idols The celebration of vanity The constant pursuit of look at me Look at me Look at me Well now we're looking at and all I can see is a world drowning in sin and suffering. I realize these were not your doing. Nonetheless, I'm happy for you to be taking the blame. Humanity has done a fine job with this, but I'll take it from you. Before we're done, I just have to ask, what kind of person claims he can forgive the whole world? Who do you think you are? Sincerely, Death.
2: Dear Death, I got your letter. My apologies for it taking a few days to write back. I had some important work to finish. I know you weren't expecting me to reply, but I'm always eager to provide the answer to a good question. Who do I think I am? I'll tell you who I am. I am the eternity before history. I am the potter who spun the galaxies. I am the spirit over the deep, and the one who tells mountains to migrate. I am the cloud of day, the fire of night. I am the co-conspirator behind the scandal of grace. I am the keeper of the books. I am well aware of the debts that line the pages of every generation. And today I am stamping each and every one of them paid in full. Who do I think I am? I'll tell you. I am the just and furious wrath that makes hell look like a campfire and I am the towering wave of mercy that can quench its thirsty flame. I am the billowing storm of love that sits on every horizon and my goodness rains down on both the wicked and the righteous. I am the redeemer of wasted years I am the welcome home to every prodigal son I am the voice in the ear of every young girl whispering I created you and you were created I am faithful even to the faithless my name is salvation my name is power even power over you Do you really want to know who I am? I am the foot on your head. I am the spear in your side. I am the one author of this story. I am the one holding the pen. And I will block you out with a single stroke of my hand. I will have the last word because I am the word. And death, I am here to give you a word. On Friday, you weren't attending my funeral, you were attending yours. The nails in my hand will be the ones in your coffin. And just to be clear, I was not a victim of human plans, and I was certainly never a slave to you. I am the victor. I am the master. I am the one who sets the captives free. And not only have I broken your grip on me, but I will pry your fingers from all who call my name. You are done. You are powerless. Your work is null and void. Pack up your bags. Go and tell your friends. It is finished.
1: In case you're
2: still wondering, who do I think I am? I'll tell you who. I am. Sincerely,
0: Jesus.